professor audrey trushkey's claims in her book on aurangzeb that the shiddi of guru teg bahadur as per sikh sources is quite fictitious probably fabricated to show muslims in a bad light and there are no contemporary sources for it and as i understand you actually sent her an email with evidence that there are contemporary non sikh sources for this martyrdom has she replied back yet no she hasn't replied back i mean her her book came in 2017 which in a way strangely coincided with my initial article which i wrote for sicknet.com but since uh after publishing my book in april uh, 2019 i have been basically enhancing my previous articles ensuring that the referencing is done in a proper manner and going into some more details so my article was published by article on the martyrdom of guru tegh bahadur sahib was published by institute of sikh studies chandigarh and they have a journal called abstract of sikh studies so i sent that article which was published in uh, late 2019 20 now it was published by in sorry in 2021 by the abstract of sex studies so i sent that article basically saying there are plenty of multiple non sex sources which mention the martyrdom of uh, guru sahib she hasn't replied back yet do you expect any reply back uh strictly speaking i wasn't expecting a reply simply because uh academics across abroad they have a little or small opinion about non academics like myself so we are amateurs for them although the article may have been written in a professional style and the references are from the books or manuscripts which are well regarded no uh, i i just got a out of office reply that she's on the sabbatical till september 2023 yeah <laughs> that's the only thing i got here okay so moving on even when you did write that article in the first place as we understand there were some allegations being made against the guru's martyrdom by the hindu right which was basically that a uh, sikh sources have fictionalized the whole event it didn't happen the way it did yes and that was the motivation to write the article initially in 2017 there was a very famous guy i can't remember his name and but he he was running this uh twitter probably not twitter at that time probably uh, on the facebook and on 
and on uh, social media that he, everything about hindu nationalism but he also questioned that there is no proof specifically he made two allegations that there's no proof that any brahmins came to guru sahib to seek help and secondly there is no contemporary non sikh source on the martyrdom of guru sahib uh, he he got some support from a section of internationalists but some of them also objected that he's taking it too far that he we should not question these kind of things uh, i posted my sources to him on the on his blog and he didn't publish it so in a way i need to be thankful to him that that, that prompted me to write an article on sicknet and then eventually a proper journal article into 2020 yeah but if we do look at the content of that article that article has been pretty much referenced so many times quoted so many times because basically the references and the sources you cite they were uh, accepted by a uh, prominent sikh historian such as dr ganda singh dr foja singh and you know even a uh, js garewal all of them pretty much did accept their sources particularly the persian sources if i'm correct yes and that's a little bit amazing and surprising thing that even i mean all these sources and the the people you have named professor ganda singh dr js garewal foja singh they wrote about all this matter around 1970s mid 1970s so this has been in the public domain close to 50 years and still we are questioning these things and on top of it some of these persian sources like the sojan rai pandari one the bhim sen one those were translated by jadunath sarkar before partition in 1930s and 1940s so 80 years down the line the sources are in the public domain and still people are questioning it so this guy on social media we we can say well he is not into academics but he tries to portray he knows everything he has not learned but how come a professor of american university has not searched them he is not aware of them which is very surprising it is very surprising because lying on my desk at the moment right next to me is a book by andrew g boston who's also a american based uh, jewish academic and the name of this book is sharia versus freedom the legacy of islamic totalitarianism and it's quite amazing that within this uh, book he's actually uh, cited several articles and they too actually mentioned the martyrdom of guru teg bahadur and this is quite amazing because they've actually cross referenced it with other original accounts so the fact that i mean i do know that if audrey trashki does listen to this episode chances are she's going to dismiss it as being uh, islamophobic at the end of the day because that seems to be her biggest resort to any criticism and uh, you know with all due respect to her i mean especially after the professor goldman controversy vera she referenced a uh, alleged quote from professor goldman's translation of the ramayana where sita calls rama misogynist swine but goldman never had that line in his translation so she got caught out so 
We do know we're dealing with a academic with very uh, shady credentials and practices. However, unfortunately, due to the uh, cultural Marxist and leftist influence in universities, as long as there is a doctor or a professor attached to the front of the name, academics can get away with quite a lot. And that's what we are seeing worldwide today. Sadly, that's true. And unfortunately, also, I personally feel that a sick academic, probably one of the chairs in the Western Hemisphere in Canada and America, there are quite a few sick chairs, they should take up this issue because they will have the credibility. Yep. The, what I was trying to say was that Yes, this is true. Her credentials have been questioned. I mean, unfortunately, what happened was she got a lot of uh, abuse, verbal abuse on the social media. And sometimes in the conferences she spoke. So in a way, she got a lot of sympathy from academia for free speech. So that in a way clouded the matter. So her if we had given a constructive criticism, her book would have been dismissed. But unfortunately, we, because she was, she got a like a hollow off of that. Oh, she is fighting against fascism, and see, she's getting all the abuses from the fascist Hindu nationalists. But it was not like that. It was more to do with the fact that that her. Her analysis is faulty. She has not researched her her book well. She hasn't hasn't done her homework. Yep, that's quite right. But unfortunately, when the matter became a separate matter of abuse, I mean, I suppose you can say controversy sells, and for her, it sold quite a lot. True, true. It, 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 the book. I have been told has sold about 25,000 copies. So you, you can see it has it has helped the publisher and her. Yeah. Yep. So basically, if we do now move on, Guru Tegh Bahadur's martyrdom came at a very dark time for the subcontinent. And this is actually based on a whole retinue of Persian sources written at the time. We will only mention some of them, which is related to the Sikhs at least. So the... Events leading up to these martyrdom are quite important as well because we have this image in our mind of a pacifist Guru Tegh Bhadr who uh, spontaneously went, stood up for religious rights and was killed. But if you look at the history of Guru Tegh Bhadr, he was an established military commander. He had defeated Mughals before. So you can see that the state considered him quite a radical danger. Yes, uh, I, I think th that is uh, a a true assessment. If we go a little bit further, uh, sorry, back, uh, Surjan, Lai, Surjan Rai Pandari refers that Dara Shiko was given a safe passage to move through the river Bias at Goindwal by the 2200 forces of Guru Harai Sahib. Yep. And when Aurangzeb became the emperor and he had killed all his brothers, this was allegedly reported to him. And that was the reason that he, 
asked the next guru the guru har krishna sahib because guru har rai sahib had uh, passed away by then to come and see him in a, in a way he asked one of his uh, courtiers to get him and it was like okay if he doesn't come politely then use force so so there is a definitely a link that aurangzeb wanted to interfere in sikh matters the thing is that i have not found any other source sujana pandari is a good source but if you ask me personally there is no other contemporary source or any other source which says guru harai sahib may have helped uh, darashiko but saying that there is a possibility as darashiko does come on in sikh history he was the the governor of lahore province and and lahore province came under the area which was uh, the seat of guru harai sahib so there were some interactions so he by the time guru tek bahadur sahib had been the guru aurangzeb the his his fascism had reached to an extent where jazia had been reimposed there was a pilgrimage tax for hindus to go to any non muslim going to their pilgrimage had to pay a tax to visit or to get emancipation from their uh, religious sites then there were different duties the duties for trade for a muslim merchant was half that of a hindu merchant so by this time he he had crossed more most boundaries of um being a sensible mature ruler that i find it very interesting that professor audrey has said well aurangzeb should be judged for the times which he <laughs> lived he has been deemed as a fascist when he is not well we can compare aurangzeb with his own ancestors shah jahan jahangir akbar humayun and babar he he was more extremist than all of them together so her, her thesis the her, her book doesn't stack up it's simply the controversy basically uh, made uh, it to be a bestseller i suppose when we do consider what aurangzeb did i mean you know we can't really fit much in this episode because it's not really about how mm-hmm. radical islam influenced aurangzeb but if you do look at something scholar uh, sd goitin now this is quite a prominent scholar of islam this is something they mention about the jizya which you mentioned which is basically the jizya is a tax which uh, individuals who don't convert to islam have to pay to keep islamic society going and uh, these individuals are known as dhimis so just a few quotes from scholars down here to actually uh, you know establish what the circumstances were like for non muslims at that time which is taxation by the muslim government was merciless and a very large section of the population must have permanently lived at the starvation level one gets the impression that the poor were concerned more with getting money for the payment of their taxes 
than for food and clothing for failure of payment usually induced cruel punishment. An Islamic state was part of or coincided with Dar al-Aslam, the house of Islam. Its treasury was the money of the Muslims. So basically what Goyten is saying is that in Islam, they view the world in two uh, perceptions. There is the Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam, and the Dar al-Harb, the house of war. So to quote another Muslim scholar, Abu Fatima, Islam teaches that other lands must be invaded simply because they're disbelievers who are the worst oppressors as disbelief is the worst oppression and Islamic governments uh, governance must be implemented in those lands. So basically what we're seeing is that the local population, the non-Muslim population is eventually being reduced in the name of religion and they're worse off than even second class citizens. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a sad reality. And I, I think uh, most Marxist historians will say, and there is a little bit truth in that, that those were different times. But saying that, that he, there were other regimes who were more tolerant. Maharaja Rajiv Singh's regime was very tolerant. Akbar's own regime was very tolerant. So they were, they were regimes even in those times who were tolerant and they were far-sighted. So... Uh, I think we, it's more about that how the martyrdom of Guru Sahib was dismissed as, well, there is no contemporary source. And when she, with Professor Audrey, quotes a source, she quotes a source which was written about 103 or 110 years after the martyrdom. She didn't. That that was. I think she was being lazy. She didn't. She could have just picked up the work of Jaluna Sarkar, who is very well regarded, or some of the contemporary Muslim uh, Aurangzeb sources. I mean, uh, Samard, the Armenian saint, he was also killed by, executed by um, Aurangzeb. I mean, right. how did Aurangzeb treat his father <laughs> and his <laughs> brothers compared to other Mughal emperors? Yeah. And I suppose when you look at it, so the Shaydi of Guru Tegh Bhadr, which is quite a poignant event in Sikhi as well, this occurs in 1675 in Delhi. Yes. And the earliest source we have, because first let's just deal with the non-Sikh sources, the earliest source we have which actually mentions this, because just a note, there might be other sources out there which still have to be discovered, which are from probably a nearer True. period. But almost eight years later, we have the Padshahi Burunji, which is written in 1682. So yes. what is the Padshahi Burunji and what does it say? Padshahi Burunji are basically the official chronicles of Assam. So they, yep. they were the scrolls, chronicles uh, written by people of official documentation like the royal the royal house of uh, assam and they have been written continuously from the 13th century onwards so the source we have over there so they are contemporary source so yes from a if you just scratch the surface one can say well they were not present over there but they knew what were official circles were trying to say 
and it makes reference to the arrest of Guru Sahib in 1665, which is very interesting as well because Guru Sahib's martyrdom happened in 1675, so ten years prior to uh, the martyrdom. According to this source, he was arrested, and uh, and again, this book, if memory serves me right, this book was probably published. The English translation of this book was published around in 1940s, so just one or two years before the partition of India, or a couple of years after it. So, Professor Fodger Singh. In 1975, was the first Sikh historian to quote it. So again, what I'm trying to say is that this is in public domain for more than 75, 80 years, and in Sikh circles for more than 50 years. But still, this source was not used by Professor Audrey. So does the Padshahi Brunji in itself? So first we have Guru Tegh Bahadur being arrested before his execution, almost ten years before, and you can see that Aurangzeb is quite agitated, quite concerned that you know Guru Harkrishan never agreed with me. I was never able to enforce him to do anything. Now suddenly they have this new Guru who is actually a warrior, and he is the son of Guru Harkobind, who actually defeated us on so many occasions. So obviously there is a fear in his mind, and he orders the Guru's arrest. Now, under what circumstances was the Guru then released if he was, you know, so dangerous to the state? Yes, Pacha Buranji gives the information that Raja Ram Singh of Ambar or Jaipur was asked to arrest the Guru, and he now Raja Ram Singh is the same person who has allegedly also let Shivaji. The Maratha, he let him off. So basically, so you you have a person probably you can say who's sympathetic to non-Muslims. So he he went to Guru Sahib and he brought him to his palace as an honored guest. As a, I mean that you one has to understand that the stature of Guru Sahib was very. Prominent among non-Muslims, the house of Guru Nanak had been preaching in a vast area across from you can say from Bengal to Kabul to Kashmir to the south. So the the stature was very high. So when, and after keeping him as a honored guest, Raja Ram Singh bid goodbye to him and let him go. And when Aurangzeb asked him, "Well, why did you let him go?" So, well, he's a he's a saintly man. So I let him go and say, "Well, and he is not a raja or a nawab, and he is not worthy of an emperor's vengeance, and he is just a fakir." So I didn't let him escape. It, people. If we do anything to such a fakir, people will laugh at us that well we are accusing him of something. So, so in a way, in a smart way, he, I think, he gave an explanation to Aurangzeb, and although Aurangzeb was not happy, but 
you can, as you can say, in the whole bar that was saying, oh, Shakira, let him go. I stayed. He stayed with me for a few days. I could see, well, he's not worthy of our attention or our least of our vengeance. So that's what it says. And, and this, doc, this thing has been reported in Sikh manuscripts as well, but they haven't given... They haven't given a date, a date or a year for it. Those, they seem to club it around the time of the martyrdom. Right, which in itself is quite confusing. But do you think that Aurangzeb actually just decided to let the Guru go and agree with Ram Singh at the end of the day because he didn't want to really, you know, focus on too many problems? Yes, I, I think one needs to probably search a little bit further that in 1665, what was happening in the Mughal court and those kind of things. And I think also probably Aurangzeb might have felt that I don't have enough reason to take it further. And also, one has to think that the house of Jaipur, at that time it was Karl Ambar, had been allies, a key allies of uh, since of Mughal Empire since the days of Akbar, so the the whatever Raja Ram Singh said carried some weight, and I think there may have been some opinion among the at least among the non-Muslim courtiers of Aurangzeb that well, he's a saint, he's a fakir. So what are we? Um, why are we? troubling him because although you mentioned about the wars, the battles which he fought as a Guru's son, but that was during Guru Hargobind Sahib's guruship. In Guru Tegh Bahadur Sahib's guruship or since the days of Guru Hargobind Sahib, no battle or war had been fought with anybody. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, this is this point is worth exploring because that what were the circumstances which may have led him to probably concentrate on some other issues rather than this one here. And one thing you see around this time is that even though the House of Umber is maybe a bit prominent at the court, their influence is being decreased. And as Jadunath Sarkar points out that Aurangzeb kept the Hindus he actually needed for state administration. He tried keeping them in good humor. Uh, even non-Hindus who were non-Muslims particularly, only the bare few skeleton cabinets he needed, but all the others were either being forced to convert to Islam or leave the imperial court straight away. So these were very dark times, and uh, there is a letter from a Rajput Vakil to uh, the House of Umber and Baba Banda Singh Bhadra's time, which does mention that Guru Tegh Bhadra actually accompanied Raja Ram Singh to Assam because a uh, Ram Singh did actually request the Guru's assistance. So you can see that the House of Umber was somehow indebted to the House of Guru Nanak and they did come in swinging for the Guru and maybe Aurangzeb felt that, you know, the Sikhs have called down, let him go, what's our problem with him, we will deal with him later. So that's the Padshahi Burunji, which is 1682. Now, mm -hmm. the next source we have is actually from a bit later period, but 1695. This is the Kulasat Atwarik of Sujan Rai Pandari. Now, we know that Pandari was a clerk at Delhi. He's originally from Batala in Punjab, but he was a clerk at yes. Delhi. So most likely, 
Pandar, he was probably an eyewitness given that he writes about Shah Jahan as well and he's very detailed, which sort of indicates he was an eyewitness. He writes about Aurangzeb as well, the Shidi of Guru Tegh Bahadur. So this is someone with access to very high-level, you know, Mughal personalities and records concerning historical events. But there's a strange thing about his record, which is he doesn't mention why the Shidi occurred. Right. Okay, a couple of things about Sujan Rai's account, that this account is very well regarded. And it is, it talks about the economy, the social life, the geography, and the way he describes Punjab, and he says the Lahore province is my Punjab, the most beautiful. It's a, it's a very nostalgic account of the, the province of Punjab, and it uh, and it, the level of detail is is extraordinarily accurate. The if you read his account closely, there are only two things he have mentioned about Aurangzeb. One is the martyrdom of Guru Sahib, and other is the destruction of Mathura Temple. And those are the only two political things he has mentioned. Yes, he has not mentioned the circumstances of Guru's martyrdom. But as a matter of fact, he has given a statement that Aurangzeb executed, martyred Guru Sahib. It was not a political account. Aurangzeb. I don't know if your viewers or your listeners are aware that Aurangzeb did not authorize anybody to write his official history. He, it, it was his perception that it was against Islam or probably not of a worthy uh, venture. So we have somebody who has... And imagine, Amarjeet, that if he had said, well, Aurangzeb did very bad and he killed a saintly person, that could have some consequences. He could have been captured and killed. So you, we, we have to understand that these writers in those era had some limitation. So as a matter of fact, he has simply said, on this year, the Guru Sahib was asked to come to Delhi and, and he was executed. That's what he says. And But in academic circles, this account is very well regarded. And Gyani Gyan Singh, when he writes in 1880s, he's aware of these classes, uh, uh, Pandari's account. So this is very well regarded. And it was uh, translated by Jaduna Sarkar in 1930s or 40s. Yeah. And I, I believe one thing which we also need to consider down here, which is very uh, important, is that Books, accounts of Kulasat Atwarik's nature were, you know, it's so comprehensive. These were rarely ever produced on the subcontinent. And if they were, they were actually intended for imperial eyes. So imperial officers, governors, high-ranking individuals close to the emperor. So it does sort of, you know, explain why he couldn't have mentioned Guru Tegh Bahadur Shidi, because who knows, maybe Aurangzeb did read this himself. True, true, true. That could be true because his account is more about. If you, it's a very beautiful account. It's an account about the different subas 
the different provinces in India, what their economy is, what are their uh, heritage sites, religious sites, their rivers, their uh, mountains, the geography of it. So, and and you you see he is during this era he's not the only one. There are other uh, Hindus who have written in Persian, and I think they probably might have written because by this time people might have realized that okay, Aurangzeb is not has not asked anybody to write history, so people in a their way own way are recording the events. And interestingly enough, it seems that at the end of the day, that Pandari's account actually manages to convey more than what Pandari actually writes in the account. The silence conveys more than what the words do. Exactly. And yep, and this is the where this is the beauty of his account, basically, that it does sort of uh, cement the fact that the Guru was executed on Aurangzeb's orders because uh if I remember correctly, Jadunath Sarkar actually mentions based on another contemporary account that Aurangzeb had finished his work in Hassan Abdal and he had come back to Delhi. So more than likely he was at Delhi when the Guru was executed. And Pandari, with all his access to imperial records, because he was actually based at the Delhi court himself. So this is the first solid account we have, which pretty much refutes uh, Trushkes and uh, Islamist claims that the Guru was never executed by Aurangzeb in Delhi. Yes, I mean, even if we say, well, well, he was, well, he was a munshi in Batara or munshi in Mughal court in uh, in Punjab. The fact is that he was present in Punjab Delhi when Guru Sahib was martyred, and he knew it, and and hence he wrote about it. If you read his few couple of lines he wrote about the martyrdom. One can read between the lines and say, well, he doesn't tell you why the Guru Sahib was executed. And one can see, well, if, if a criminal is executed, the, the manuscript writer would have written that due to this reason, he was executed by the emperor. So, obviously, pro probably we being a Sikh are trying to read a little bit more into it. But on the other extreme, people who are probably pro and they, they will say, no, no, there's nothing written in it. But it is a contemporary source. He was well aware of it. A, a, a great saint from the house of Guru Nanak, who had been preaching in, in this region for over 150 years, close to 200 years, had been martyred by the, the Mughal government. It was a big news. People can't. And it was uh, because he has written an account on Punjab and there's an account on the Sikhs. So he has mentioned few details about each guru. Obviously, his the closer he comes to his, his own time, the detail, the accuracy of details becomes bigger and larger. Yeah. Yep. And now we move on to the second account, which is again another contemporary Persian account. This individual was probably most likely, well, not probably, but was 
actually present at the Mughal court and, my, and you know, most likely did see the execution. This is the Nuska Edil Kusha, which is uh, written in 1709 as a memoir. And it is actually written by the Rajput commander Bhim Sen, who himself was a general at the Delhi court. And uh, he actually served under Dalpat Rao Bondela, one of the few Hindu generals which yeah. actually survived Aurangzeb's purges. And Bundela fell at the Battle of Jajua in 1707, where Guru Gobind Singh Ji was also fighting. So Bhim Sen met Guru Gobind Singh Ji, but he also writes about Guru Teg Bahadur Shidi in relation to Guru Gobind Singh Ji. So his account is very important because it mentions more of a political uh, reason, which does have a grain of religious reason. But more or less, he mentions that people had started seeing Guru Teg Bahadur as a parallel authority to Guru, uh, I mean, to Aurangzeb. Yes, I mean, both Surjanar Pandari and Bhim Sen were moving within the official Mughal circles. So they were part and parcel of the, uh, the ruling elite in a way. So yes, and well, Bhim Sen simply states that the Guru Sahib was called Padsha by his followers. And when the news was conveyed to the Aurangzeb, he ordered that he should be brought to the court. And when he was brought to the court, he was executed. So again, so in a way, Bhim Sen, if, if again, how I would read it, Bhim Sen, well, on a flimsy ground, the Mughal emperor executed the saint. That's how I would read it, yeah. So basically, once again, what's not said is actually uh, indicating more than what is being said down there. Exactly. I mean, I, again, I, coming back to the same point, that if you openly criticize the ruling elite, even your own, um, the Bundela chief, he would not have liked that. Well, we, we don't get need to get into trouble with modern Zaib. and But you can still convey the same message by clearly, carefully using, picking and choosing your words, yeah. And what's what's that? Uh, that's what uh, Bhim Sen and uh, Sujana Pandari did. And one thing I'd like to mention here before moving on to the third account is that just because these records were uh, completed on a particular date, does not mean that they were started on that date or that year. They could exactly. have been started many years before. In those times, people would take years to complete their manuscript. Because the reason I say that is some of the accounts which we have in that era have, have in fact dates. Well, I started this account on this date and in the end they've written uh, that on this date I have completed this account. So usually it is over a period of good few years, not months, Good few years, yeah. Right. And now the third account we come to is a bit more interesting because this account really is a... I mean, you can use it as a pro-Aurangzeb account, but at the same time, this account is very anti-Aurangzeb in a way as well. Now, it's... I'm yes. just trying, yeah, trying to find a way to convey this, but... uh. This account actually is the Masar-e-Alamgiri. Now, this is written in 1710. It's an unofficial history of Aurangzeb's last 30 years as emperor. 
So basically what uh, Muhammad Saki Mustad Khan, who's actually the author, he says that Aurangzeb had actually ordered the uh, cessation, basically that the production of detailed records had to be stopped because, well, they didn't have computers back then. So you had a thousand scribes working away day and night to record all the events which were happening. But Muhammad Saki Mustad Khan mentions that the economic state of the empire was so grim that Aurangzeb actually started laying off staff. So this yes. meant that all these de detailed records had to be stopped from uh, being produced in those uh, you know, last several years. But nonetheless, some private individuals kept doing what they were doing. And based on their uh, records, he's actually uh, building up this uh, Masari Alamgiri now. While he doesn't actually mention that Guru Tegbadar was an executed martyr, he doesn't mention anything besides Aurangzeb specifically. He does mention that Aurangzeb basically, in a fit of religious fervor, ordered the destruction of all non-Islamic places of worship. Yeah, true. And it does mention that, you know, special centers were set up for infidels where... Uh, public officials who were actually appointed as, like, you know, I would say Iran's morality police dragged infidels, their women, their children into these centers and tried brainwashing them to believe in Islam. And uh, Masari Alamgiri, I mean, it does have that celebratory tone that, you know, well, look, it's the triumph of Islam, but it does actually add to a case because it does mention that the destruction of these temples was on an industrial scale. Basically, all non-Muslim places of worship were destroyed on a non uh, on a very high industrial scale. Yes, I mean there was in that era there was a totally ban on making new places of worship, total ban on repairing the existing ones as well. So they took another step at the smallest pretext they would take down any non-Muslim place of worship. So the pretext could be as simple as tax not paid or local dispute. So at the smallest pretext, they would, they would raise the, the non-Muslim place of worship. That's a, that is a reality. I think based on this uh, Alamgiri, uh, Masari Alamgiri, Jadunath Sarkar actually calculated that uh, by 1668, when Aurangzeb actually banned uh, Hindu fairs and marketplaces, this actually cut off a massive, substantial amount of revenue, which they could otherwise have collected just to keep Delhi going for decades on their own. But uh, they just didn't see it that way. And uh, this destruction was augmented by the fact that, you know, well, basically... Uh, if I was, if I can quote Dr. Main Khaled Al Quda, who uh, on July 22nd, 2007, in the Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America, this is something he said, and this is this does explain Aurangzeb's mentality. Their belief is that Islam is the final divine religion, and this supersedes yeah. all other divine religions, and that yeah. all other religions are abrogated by the prophethood of their of their uh, you know prophet. So, in another word after the fact that the prophet has taught what he has done, no one has the right to remain in their religion. So basically, Aurangzeb, the way he saw it, was he was stopping the uh, oppression of disbelief and, you know, being a good 
fanatic as he felt by doing what he was doing down here. And this is what the Masari Alam Giri celebrates. And there is no reason to believe that he made any exception for Sikh Gurdwaras. No. So you, I, I think for them, all non-Muslims were kafir. Especially the ones who were not mentioned in, in Quran. So, so there will be all in, Indian non-Muslims were dubbed as Budparast. Budparast, basically idol worshippers. Although Sikhs do not worship idols, but in their terminology, because they were non-Muslims, they were kafirs. So a harsh treatment is justified. And that's a fundamentalist interpretation of Islam, sadly, uh, which is in, in some circles is still going on. Yep. And so moving on from the Masari Alamgiri, because that does augment the case that there was a widespread uh, destruction of all non-Muslim places of worship, we come to 1719. Now, this is the Ibratnama of Muhammad Qasim. Now, yes. again, just like the other Persian sources, it's not, it's not what he says, but what he does not say, which is quite intriguing. But uh, Qasim was actually a prodigy of the Saeed brothers at Delhi, but he was himself based at Lahore. So he's actually quite high in the Mughal hierarchy. Like, you know, yes. just like Bhimsen and Bhandari, he was actually, uh, you know, private to secret channels. You know, he used to have a lot of intelligence couriers around him. So while his chronology is a bit shady, his narrative otherwise is very authentic. And he's actually one of the first Persian authors to uh, imply that in his eyes, Guru Tegba, there was a martyr for the faith. Yes, that's, I find this one to be most interesting, simply because written by a Muslim shortly after Aurangzeb's death. And he clubs Guru Teg Bahadur Sahib uh, as a martyr, and he also puts Samrad, the Armenian uh, saint Fakir, who was uh, executed by Aurangzeb in the same category. So, yeah, it, this is a very interesting, very, very interesting account for me. Yeah. And once again, he's quite, and you can read that at that time, many Muslims must have felt well, a certain section that, look, what the hell? <laughs> we shouldn't have done this. And you can see that the same attitude which uh, Qasim has actually uh, filters down to even Bulesha, who actually called Guru Tegbahadur the true Ghazi of the righteous faith, the true warrior yeah. of faith. Yes, yes. The, yeah, I mean, Bulesha was also, I mean, in addition to, yes, he is widely sung even today in Pakistan, by on this side as well, because his Punjabi poetry is of a later date and quite, it is not very onerous to even non-Punjabi speakers. So, but he was quite controversial in his times as well by, because he used to question all these things and he did call the Guru Sahib uh, Ghazi, a Ghazi religious warrior. So imagine, those who are suggesting that, well, no, he didn't. He was not martyred. He, he, he takes it further and and calls him uh, Ghazi. I mean, 
I have been told that in his uh, a few years after his death, his uh, grave was vandalized by the extremist. I'm talking about uh, Baba Bulisha. So, but by quoting Amarjit, by quoting all these accounts, you have we are building a picture that first there are several accounts. Secondly, one should be a little bit careful, read these accounts carefully to understand what the person is trying to say. Read between the lines, as they say. Yep, and you do get the impression that Qasim, whatever his time, must have actually wept when he saw Aurangzeb order this execution at the end of the day. You get this uh, sense of fatality from what he writes that basically he's resigned himself to the fate which, as we know, eventually befell the Mughals at the hands of the Khalsa. Yes, I mean, he, he his account was written or completed in 1719. So by this time, uh, Banda Bahadur had been executed and his Sikhs have been, so Sikhs are being deemed as outcasts, fit to be killed. But despite that, his account is sympathetic. He treats Guru Sahib as a martyr. So in a way, he's critical of foreign Zaib. When you are saying but, that the person but, killed by the emperor is a martyr, so clearly the killer or executor can't be a good person, isn't it? Yes. Right. So and all these accounts which you have we have discussed now, not single of one has been mentioned by our esteemed professor Audrey. I am not sure if she's going to listen to this, but I sure as hell would hope that at least her readers listen to this to form a very impartial picture. Yes. Now, the fifth account we have is again from 1719. So remembering that basically that just because the account is finished on a certain date does not imply it was, you know, started on that date. This is the Kalimat-i-Taibat. Now, this is actually quite important because this is actually a pseudo-religious chronology compiled by Naqshbandi Sufi phonetic Mirza Mazar Jane Janan. And even though he's born after Guru Tegh Bahadur Shidi, being a Naqshbandi, which was the same, uh, you know, the forerunner of uh, Dioband and the, uh, we can say, the uh, phonetical uh, strain of Islam being followed by Al-Qaeda and many other groups today. So Mirza Mazar Jane Janan, his father was a high-ranking functionary because he was a Naqshbandi, Aurangzeb was a Naqshbandi, so... Uh, Mirza had access to his father's memoirs and, you know, the uh, other uh, court officials of Aurangzeb. So now, Mirza does not mention the Ninth Guru's martyrdom explicitly. He, however, celebrates Aurangzeb's destruction of non-Islamic places of worship. So yeah. one part of his account is particularly, particularly important because it highlights what was happening at the time. And it sort of relates to Bhim Sen's account because Bhim Sen mentioning the uh, Guru as an alternative source of authority, it's a uh, almost logical that the Guru would have been armed and, you know, ready to confront Aurangzeb if it came to a physical clash. So what the Kalimat Itayabata does is it provides a rationale for why the Sikhs would have decided to arm themselves anyhow, which is that 
Aurangzeb actually specifically targeted Sikh Gurdwaras. So either the Gurdwaras were destroyed or turned into mosques. And he mentions that this was done because the Sikhs were infidels. They were not uh, willing to submit to Islam. And one of the things he actually mentions is that, uh, if I remember correctly, if this is his account, is that uh, there was a Saeed who was actually made the head of a Gurdwara at Sirhind. So this Gurdwara at Sirhind was destroyed, a mosque built in its place. The Saeed who was a descendant of Prophet Muhammad was made its head. But two Sikhs came and uh, assassinated the Saeed. And Mirza actually mentions that these were common incidents with the Sikhs, that two Sikhs would come and just slay the Ghazi and be done with it. Yeah, I mean, from a Sikh point of view, I'm not justifying any killing, but from a Sikh point of view, well, you destroyed our place of worship and build your own. So we are justified in, in doing and taking the remedial action. Obviously, in those times, if the government itself is doing these things, who do you go to redressal your grievances? So, right. yes, but it, it, it points, it builds the picture that what kind of what kind of regime Aurangzeb was running? How how was his government and all this uh, notion that he was not a bad ruler? Well, he was the ruler of his own times, but none of these acts he took fascism, extremism, fundamentalism to the extreme end compared to his ancestors and other rulers which came after him. And basically after this, now we come to an even more important source, which is again, you know, says more than it lets on. This is the Akam-e-Alamgiri. Again, it's a 1719 conclusion date. Now it's offer Mirza Iniyat Ullah Khan. He was yes. a personal teacher to Aurangzeb's daughter and Aurangzeb's own secretary. So now he doesn't mention the ninth Guru's martyrdom, but he does mention the same specific policy. He actually signals out that Aurangzeb had a special pathological hatred reserved for Sikhs. In his eyes, being a Sikh was the greatest sin of the Gurus and Sikhs in total. And the way he set about to punish them was almost to erase the name of Sikhs from history. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, and it should be, and it, it all adds to the picture. And the good thing is, it is a, it is all, it's a contemporary source. Yeah. Yep. So this is actually in, in the hands of a man who might have actually even conveyed Aurangzeb's order to the commanders that this is what we have to do about the Sikhs. Yeah. I mean, uh, and this is, Similar kind of issue arises when we read the accounts of Mahmud Ghaznavi. So I'm slightly digressing that he destroyed a lot of uh, Hindu mandas. Marxists will say, well, it is because of they carried, they had a lot of uh, money, gold, and he was after money. Well, he specifically raised them to the ground and used that, that he's being a mujahid and he has a right, he, he said he wants to be known as an idol breaker. 
and if you read the contemporary accounts they justify his action and they tell some of them subtly criticize him but many of them justify him saying he they they were kafirs so that needs to be done so same thing you have some accounts which in a way are trying to justify the actions of aurangzeb but they end up giving us evidence of his fascism as well which only helps us at the end of the day yes to yes to to build up a picture to have a alternate narrative yeah so number 7 is the fruksiernama now this we know is started in 1713 and it ends in 1719 uh Muhammad Ehsan Azad was Emperor Fruksier's official biographer so first you had Aurangzeb and then you had Bahadur Shah then yes. I believe there was Jahandar Shah and then came Fruksier and now Azad being Fruksier's official biographer he you know in this capability he had access to a lot of you know sources and he mentions how Aurangzeb ordered Guru Tegh Bahadur arrested fearing his uh, stature as an alternative power to the Mughals so he actually clarifies that Aurangzeb felt that you know if you know people are not happy with me they can turn to Tegh Bahadur straight away, uh, straight away he can become the new emperor so Asan mentions how the order for Guru Tegh Bahadur's arrest was kept a secret now this is important because Aurangzeb would have known that if these arrest orders are made public there can be a massive uh, war on my hands straight away yeah i mean the th- the thing is that uh, uh, if we read the mughal history aurangzeb history sorry aurangzeb history carefully he he led quite a few of his powerful hindu rajas to battles which eventually killed them so so historians have mentioned that that it was a win-win situation from him quite a few of them were sent to assam assam obviously at that time manipur meghalaya all those states which are now called seven sisters came under assam as well so they were always reigning so you had and the local terrain was such a difficult uh for a outsider to comprehend that half of the battle was with the terrain and half with the opposite army so in aurangzeb's mind it was a win-win situation if he gets new territory it's a victory for the mogul empire <laughs> if the hindu raja gets killed and with him the rajputs had died anyway few less kafirs although they might be on with the mugalami some may not like this analysis but that's what i can if i if i have time i can quote some of the historians have suggested that so mm, so so, so he, he 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 found it ways to meddle meddle or basically how to kill destroy any alternative uh non muslim journal leader yeah 
I suppose if Aurangzeb did ever write a book, it would be called How to Be a Political Bastard, 101 Rules to Success, but moving on from there. <laughs> no, I, you, you see, the thing is that, I mean, I, the good thing about you, Amarjit, you have been trying to build a picture, trying to say that this was his political philosophy and here are the sources. That's how you're building it up. And I think what she... What Dr. Audrey, Professor Audrey has done is she has basically, it, it's like a propaganda book, unfortunately. That you all wrong, basically, he was not that bad. So it was a big propaganda. So if one looks at the source, who's giving uh, the donations to that particular university or that department, or I don't know, probably she feels, Professor Audrey feels that way. But uh, yes. I mean, so, it's a well-established yeah. fact that Aurangzeb fascism led to the collapse of Mughal Empire. Yeah. Well, yes, uh, obviously, because I mean, yes, the Masari Alamgiri pretty much points it out. I mean, they were writing basically when they could see that the empire was going to hell. So yes, that's one uh, proverbial fact. And now, Prokhtir Nama also says something else, that the Guru was apprehended opportunistically near Sirhand. That, you know, he came near Sirhand and they grabbed him from there straight away. Yes, it, it, it does state that, yeah. But then so, the fact so, that... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, sorry, go ahead, yeah. yeah. But then the fact that the Sikhs never made any attempt to uh, actually liberate him and the fact that he had already installed Guru uh, Gobind Rai as the 10th Guru, it does sort of uh, underscore that the Guru coming near Sirhind was also pre-planned on the Guru's part. He, the, the way the Sikh Chronicles project is that the Guru Sahib was on his way from um, from Punjab to Delhi. So Sarind was at that time they were, it was not a suba, but there was a Fajdar over there. So it was a subdivision. So there was a uh, Fajdar over there. So that the Fajdar said that Go, the gurus of the Sikhs was moving around and so I have uh, I have arrested him and I'm going to send him to uh, Delhi. Now were they given orders by the Mughals in Delhi is something one can speculate but I don't think we have any particular non-Sikh source on this one that under what circumstances and what was the reason, because clearly there was nothing Guru Sahib did in Sarhind which warranted an arrest. Mm -hmm. So the eighth source after the Fruksir Nama, which actually mentions this now, is uh, 1722, Muntakab Labab by Kafi Khan or uh, Muhammad Hashim, which was his other name. Now, he was yes. actually one of Aurangzeb's chief functionaries, and he's writing in 1722 as a sort of a biography. And this was someone who, even though he had retired from the court, he still had access to the you know, uh, fast decentralizing court. So he is a bit sympathetic to the Sikhs. And while he's not entirely in agreement with Aurangzeb's policies, he does indicate that religious reasons 
were more prominent than political reasons in Aurangzeb's uh, specific persecution of the Sikhs. Gurdwaras were destroyed, preachers killed, and uh, they were forced to convert to Islam, and their gurus didn't, and that's why they were persecuted. Yes, yeah, and I think this is also a good source, as you say. Um, he, 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 in a way, justifies the actions taken by Aurangzeb, but he ends up giving us a precious evidence that that how it was not like a big bang that, okay, Guru Sahib, you have done that. I'm going to ex execute you. It, 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 the policy that he says from the olden times, they have built temples in town and populous places, basically, Tarmshal or Gurdwaras. And uh, there is a, they have appointed one of their followers. So he's talking about Masans and they collect um, money from them. Yeah. All the offerings were collected by the Masans and deposited at Kirtapur Sahib um, or, or Anandpur later on. So again, written very few years after the death of Aurangzeb, and now by this time, the last few counts, they have been in a way official accounts of Muslims. They were all Muslim, they're all Muslim accounts, and they are written by people who have access to, they move in the political circles, Muslim, uh, political Mughal uh, circles. Yeah. Mm. And now we come to Sikh sources, which can be considered as being contemporary. So to Name a few. There is the 1698 uh, Shri Guru Katha of Pai, Jeevan Singh Shid, who we know brought Guru Tegh Bahadur's head back from Delhi. So he mentions that the uh, Guru died because he's by Jeevan Singh writes in a var. So basically, the uh, whole government, the whole state structure is evil. He doesn't specifically mention Aurangzeb, but the other. Two sources which I'm about to mention, they do explicitly cite Aurangzeb. So the first is the Patwahiyat, which yes. do mention that uh, Kashmiri Pandits came to meet uh, Guru Tegh Bahadur. And they don't say that they were the only reason that Guru Tegh Bahadur decided to go for Shidi, but it does sort of give us an impression of what the times were like. The Patwahis are, are it's very interesting that one of the the Hindu nationalist who confronted me on the social media was a Pardwaj. He yep. he said all those parts whose Banis are written in Guru Granth Sahib are all Hindus because and parts were Brahman. Fair enough, they could have been Brahmins. Uh, but when I quoted him that the Pardwaj, he clearly states that Guru's Kashmiri Pandits came to Guru Sahib and it's not one Patwahi, so which has been referred by a number of Patwahis. And he, did, he didn't have a clue what to say because I said, well, are you questioning your own ancestors? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> don't, no, no, we need to understand, they were basically the, the scroll writers and they used to write, they were sitting in in Hardwar, Pohawa, and other religious places. Pohawa is not just near Kurukshetra. 
in Haryana. So th- those two places, people would go. Let me explain how it used to be. Yep. At at the birth of the child, pe- the person used to go for pilgrimage, and they used to meet their family pandit sitting over there. Who's the pandit right. of? Right. So he uh, all them using the word pandit. He may be a, he's sitting. He's permanently based in Hardwar, Pohava, or any other religious place. So he's over there uh, at the. at the banks of the the holy river or whichever river um and you used to go to your family pandit or line of pandit and if the pandit had died by the time you uh, since you last came his son invariably would be sitting on that seat so you would tell them okay this is what has happened um my my son or my i had a grandson that's his name that's his date of birth this person has passed away so and he would do the shrad and all the rituals for them but also note down it but in for rich people little bit rich people they would sometimes also come on special occasions special occasion to their patron in a way so for most people for the patron they would come and they would uh once or twice a year they would come and note down everything and bakhshish they would get it now with guru sahibs because again one needs to understand that the stature of the house of guru nanak was very high so all those people who used to come to them they would ask especially in around punjab who used to come to them have you heard anything about the guru sahib had you uh heard any update on please give me any update on guru sahib so whatever people have told them after a month or two months after the incident or sometimes even few days after the incident they would have noted down so one can say well they were not there themselves but they we are not talking about 50 years after they when they are writing it they are writing about the event after few weeks so with guru sahib none of them came to them to say okay come on guys you write about uh, this is my family similarly there is little evidence that they also went to guru sahib but saying that because part the the parts also we need to understand that they wrote in braj which is like a a variant of hindi in layman term but they wrote in gurmukhi script so these some of these parts were also living in and uh, in punjab as well so they had a a huge interest in noting down in fact i mean imagine a country or a province say punjab and no don't, don't copper india which has been under a foreign rule for a thousand year the guru sahib gave that ray of hope and that house of guru nanak had been there for 200 years so there was always a reason for them to note down the specific uh, uh details about them so the guru ki sakhiyan which was compiled in 1790 which was copied from the original source whose date we don't know has dates has years on number of events 
and they are very very consistent to except for very few they are very consistent to the sikh tradition and remarkably so one is amazed that okay the tradition is not far off to what we have been told uh, so they are also very good source that's what i was trying i was trying to so sorry amarji i was trying to explain to your listeners that w- what are these sources here right so then we have the shri gur sabha which is 1701 yeah. because but we are our contemporary but mm. obviously we don't really have a exact date due to the nature of how they were compiled but they are around from that period 1701 is the shri gur sabha now there is the uh, belief of the uh, i believe current edition by professor kalvant singh i might be wrong there but again kavi senapati its author is actually a contemporary he does mention that guru teg bahadur died for religious and political freedoms and the rights of people to assemble together and express dissent against their rulers so basically if they're not happy with their rulers they can convey to their rulers why they're not happy so that's what the shri gur sabha says so so far 3c Yep. yeah sorry amarji just uh, just one uh, observation dr kulwant singh has done the english translation of shri guru sobha and right. prior to that it was edited by quite a few people um, about 50 years ago by professor ganda singh and i think shamshir singh shok as well yeah. yeah right so it's a very intriguing source but it does it mentions guru tegh bahadur shidi and it also mentions that in context that this shidi was not seen as something new by the sikhs it was you know perceived and believed to be the outcome of what the guru was doing so basically sikhs could understand straight away that what the guru did was in line with sikhi and the sikhs right to sovereignty yes i mean i think because the guru gurus were called sachhe padsha so so this was all this allegation was also used against the fifth guru guru arjan dev sahib ji yeah. um when he was martyred so so sacha padsha means the, the true king the true emperor padsha badsha is the same thing so sacha means true so obviously akbar didn't had an issue with that but obviously orange they felt okay you are true then i am false well yes you are a false king anyway so and uh, so by this time at least by i mean pe- people have enough there there is a theory i think professor vedya mentioned in professor vedya he wrote about history of medieval hindu india he wrote few volumes i think he wrote in 1930s or 40s he said when people's religion is attacked and the food and they are out of food then they will rebel then they will rebel so the reason you didn't had a mass rebel movements prior to aurangzeb was they they may have been some attack on religions but they were they were usually fewer but they were also during the war time on pretext was given also there were uh, there were no starvation 
or heavy taxation on people so that they be, they live in, on a poverty line and when there's a little bit problem there's a starvation so basically people are were being forced to die of hunger or die fighting so we had satnami revolt satnamis who were like farmers in near greater delhi in the present haryana so we had the revolt from the sikhs we have Mara- marathas in the deccan so there were a number of communities which revolted against who were being persecuted and they revolted and then even though there is controversy over these sources there is the bachetar natak there is the bansavli nama there is the gurbilasa there we have these sources which basically around that time within 10 to 20 years are pretty much you know mentioning what the persian sources are mentioning and confirming that guru teg bahadur was executed by uh, aurangzeb and sir jalunath sarkar is actually arguing that aurangzeb was actually present in delhi when guru teg bahadur was martyred and i believe dr hariram gupta actually says that uh, because i remember patwan singh also references this in his book on maharaja ranjit singh that uh, aurangzeb actually sent his uh, naqshbandi uh, you know sufi clerics to convince guru teg bahadur to become muslim and guru teg bahadur refused and actually wrote a letter to aurangzeb saying that the uh, pro- man you call prophet failed to make the entire world muslim so how can you make me a muslim yes <laughs> that's a very interesting observation but uh, 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 again if i don't know if what source jadun sarkar has used but the fact is jadun sarkar has done the maximum work on aurangzeb so you cannot dismiss him in any way i mean nobody comes even closer to him in terms of the in-depth work he has done uh, on Aurangzeb before. And the beauty of it is he also covered the, the final few years of Shah Jahan. So he has started when Aurangzeb became one of the Subedars. So he was still a prince, but Subedar of the province. So he starts his history from there and ends it with the later moguls um basically telling us the consequences of a fa- that how a fundamentalist fascist and discriminatory rule of uh Aurangzeb led to the fall of mogul empire so yeah so he, although we we are talking about a source which we don't know but the fact that it is coming from such esteemed historians should carry some weight like jadun sarkar and hari ram gupta and i suppose because sarkar has done such extensive truthful work on aurangzeb that's why he's hated the most as well <laughs> well you, you can hate him but you can't ignore him yes i have noticed that among the few um quite a few uh, so called leftist or marxist historian they they seem to dislike jadun sarkar but well even they are using his translations Unless I mean, yeah. after after 80 to 90 years, no one has been able to refute him. No, no. And so, so it's like a bitter truth. He's telling us, he's sharing a bitter truth with us. We don't like the truth, but that doesn't change the truth. That's yep, the beauty of right. truth. And, 
Sat, Satya. Satya, yep. So now we come to the source where the uh, problem is, where we can say the Paha starts. And this is the Siyar al-Matkari. Now, this is written in 1782. So William Arvin, he studied it. He dismissed its uh, narration of Guru Tegh Bahadur Shiti as being nothing more than fiction. Dr. Ganda Singh and Sardar Kapoor Singh. So this is when Sardar Kapoor Singh was in the UK during his student days. Uh, he actually, as well as Dr. Ganda Singh, they reviewed the original in Persian. And they actually... They actually clarify something which even Arvin didn't clarify because Arvin dismissed it straight away. He basically said this account is 101% rubbish. I'm not going to use it. But what yes, Dr. Ganda Singh and uh, Sardar Kapoor Singh did was they reviewed the original in Persian and compared it with the English translation. So what the Seer al-Matkarinets offer Ghulam Hussain says is that spies wrote to Aurangzeb that Guru Tegh Bahadur had an army and was gathering money from non-Muslims. Then on another page, he writes that Adam Hafiz has an army and is gathering money from the Muslims. But the translation, which is made by uh, Raymond and Briggs, two soldiers serving in the East India Company, actually conflates it to the point it says that Guru Tegh Bahadur and Adam Hafiz have joined together, they have an army, and they subsist on rapine and plunder. So basically, this account yeah. is Audrey Trushke's, and as well as many Islamists, main account to disparage the Guru with. Yes. I mean, the thing is that the problem I have with this account is that you have ignored that quite a few historians, modern historians, have ignored all the accounts which we have discussed now, till now, the the Persians one and the six sources and have used this account written in 1782 about 107 years after the martyrdom and then they have used the incorrect translation as well Hafiz Adam was a contemporary of uh, contemporary of Shah Jahan and Professor Ganda Singh, Fauja Singh have given five, six Persian sources that Hafiz Adam was banished by Shah Jahan and sent to Mecca uh, for the, the things, the looting and other things which he have been doing in that era. So, so basically what... This historian has done it. He has confused Ghulam Hussain, has confused things. Now, Hariram Gupta has given a very good uh, reason. He said, well, he was based in Western UP and six were basically uh, getting Rakhi, the tax, the security tax from that area. They were crossing Yamuna. And this was the missile period when they were all powerful and Zabita Khan and Rohilas were who were the patrons uh, of Gulam Hussain in some extent. And so, so he had a personal grudge against Sikhs. So he basically, um, he, he didn't have anything nice to say about the Sikhs. 
and so i think there is some merit in what dr gupta is saying and one interesting thing is that this account the sir al matkarin made its way to warren hastings and hastings actually uh, asked george forster to submit a report on what he felt hasain was saying and forster actually traveled throughout the punjab and north india and he reported back that he could locate no evidence of any crime for which guru teg bahadur was actually executed so he's saying that guru teg bahadur is executed but there is no evidence for whatever crime he did what gulam hussein is doing and uh, gupta says that hastings actually uh, accept uh, accepted forster's words and uh, just treated hussein with a lot of caution and this guy has been quoted by professor audrey <laughs> so i think the listeners could understand that why are we doing this episode i mean she has ignored all the sources which have discussed now and but she has quoted siaru mukhrin yeah it it seems to me that i mean one of the things which i've actually learned from dr balwant uh, singh tillo is that the best method of studying history is what has been proposed by you know eh car in what is history and car basically says that first you study who the historian is then you study the times in which the text was produced and then you know the internal evidence of the text now interestingly enough what i'm finding is that with audrey trushki there is no uh, there is no commitment to this process there is no impartiality basically what it is is that she's starting from a theory i mean back in the day there used to be this uh this criticism of religion that basically religion constructs facts to exp- uh explain a theory whereas science constructs theories to explain facts and yeah um, yeah to 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 all together different fields yeah sorry you continue yep and i suppose with trushki she's actually trying to construct facts to fit her theory whereas <laughs> in reality that i mean whatever she's doing it doesn't really hold to the ground now i'm not saying that the reaction she received is justifiable in any way but i mean even an idiot can see that if you're going to lie so blatantly so atrociously that even the source you reference its offer is actually you know disannouncing you basically denouncing you saying that you're lying well then there has to be a careful scrutiny of what she's doing and there seems to be no oversight as to what it is she's getting up to yeah i mean her people will be reading jaduna sarkar in even after 50 years from now 100 years from now but i think in next 30 years this account the this book written by uh, professor audrey will will not be read as a source of history it may be mentioned as a propaganda book but it it, it will die as natural death in academic circles but i think sikh should defend their history protect their history because and i think the good thing is that that when we 
we know our history we are up to the challenge and there will be challenges in every every few years there will be few challenges because people tend to associate commun personal differences with the communities so yeah so yeah um, but i still strongly feel that some university professor in the western hemisphere should counter her in a journal article yeah one other thing i'd add down here well two other things is that first one is that among sikhs we have you know number one is the pai chara people who are basically like leftist marxists which is free speech for them no free speech for you uh you have to tolerate whatever it is they impose on you so if we get up in gurdwaras and start discussing these facts we are basically as uh, told we are against gurmat we are racist uh you know we are going against oppressed minorities whatever the hell oppressed minority is in this context today i don't want to hazard a guess but from what i understand if we were to talk about this we are accused of ruining paichara and that's problem number 1 that we can't tell the truth even in our own gurdwaras problem number 2 is the uh, you know boomer khalistan brigade which seems to have this stupidity in its mind that you know pakistan's going to help them you know get an independent sikh state so uh, most of our history like this is actually elaborately constructed by the rss i mean I, I, it's a big stretch of the imagination but there you go it exists and the third one i suppose is the uh, upgrades who are actually saying that all of sikh history is constructed by pujaris uh, you got these three problems down here which are basically disallowing us from exposing the truth it's i think the bottom line is having extremist views and not having a a moderate or sensible approach as you say you have to understand the history when in the history the understand history in the context when was it written what was the time period what was look at the evidence the social uh the political or the social philosophy of the writer you have to consider all these things and luckily today we have discussed discussed close to i'm not counting about 15 sources how yeah, many maybe 16 17 sources yeah so 16 17 sources so and a healthy mix of written by sikh hindus muslims and uh, so not all of them can be wrong and in terms of what i would say is paichara the paichara yeah it, it it is good to have brotherhood feelings but paichara is usually based on some cultural uh connection some similarities in color, culture so you will have we, we can have some uh paichara with our fellow punjabis living in malerkotra fellow punjabis living in in uh, west punjab as a because we share the punjabi culture but if some of them consider aurangzeb as a very pious muslims then obviously on this topic they can not be cannot be any agreement and why should i refute my own history just to have the so called brotherhood 
which does not even allow to have a healthy dialogue on some of the aspects of the history, and especially on the emperor whose own record. I mean, he persecuted Shia Muslims. He killed his own brothers who were defeated, who were not a threat to him. He imprisoned his father, and he died in that in in that fort prison. living there for the last 7 8 years so people he, he he was not faithful to his own family forget about being faithful to the religion <laughs> uh, yeah so coming back to the paichara thing it's it's paichara is cannot be with the whole 100 million community we are also Two and a half, twenty-five uh, million, twenty-five yes. million six in the world. So twenty-five million six in the world. We will have diverse opinions. We cannot say that that all Sikhs are going to have paichara with Hindus. All Sikhs are going to have paichara with Muslims. It's not going to work like that. The fact is that we are minority everywhere. Right. So we have to work and live together. with all the other communities but we have to safeguard our interest as well and our in safeguarding our interest also means safeguarding our history so to some people may get hurt about it but the fact is that that in 1984 there were about 50 muslim and christian mps in in the indian parliament not a single one of them spoke either when darbar sab was attacked or when six were killed throughout india after the after the killing of uh, indira gandhi not single of them what paichara are we talking about let's be very honest about it that nobody when you are cornered nobody comes to your rescue you have to fight yourselves we may have political goals we need to lobby with other communities go for it do that i don't have any issues with that but saying one whole community is our friend and one whole community is our enemy is it doesn't work like that we have to be street smart in our dealings right yeah. and i suppose another thing we can say is that europe is currently going through a very massive right wing incitement there's a massive right wing backlash in the works and we can see that european nations western nations are now coming under right wing political governance many right wing politicians are winning so if they have a problem with a certain community seeks do not necessarily need to get involved being social justice warriors we just need to stay out of it and defend our heritage and history yes i mean there there is also a theory that that why right wings is becoming so popular across the world is that this so called neo leftism neo secularism which seems to ignore the fundamentalism among some of the minority religions has in a way over a period of time given an, an impulse uh, which has helped the the right wing 
if we are treating everybody equitably and not treating people in vote banks i mean, I, mean I, I, te i tell people i mean uh, and there is some realization among the intellectuals that yes muslims have been used as a vote bank in india but their uh, socioeconomic parameters or if you look at their education level their participation in in upper jobs is not very high but they have at least in the congress regimes they have been able to get what the fundamentalists wanted so yes coming back to the point yes we charity begins at home we need to look our community first then to the so called supernatural or unnatural paichara the, 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 you can't have a paichara paichara can't be with individuals i i have many good muslim friends but i can say they represent all muslims no similarly they if they have a friend in me they can't say the whole sikh community is their friend let's put it this way right and thank you very much for joining us regarding trash case uh, mythology at least hopefully she does listen to this and understand that uh, end of the day that it's better to confess better to admit to a mistake rather than let it grow bigger it's only for her own betterment her own academic and professional betterment i mean if she does correct it at the end of the day no one is going to have a problem with her however that said the attacks on her character her family her uh, you know career that does not really make sense because that has even given her a bigger uh, you know bump to just go on doing what it is she's doing so end of the day hopefully there is some change but if there isn't at least people now know that well you know really there is evidence to defend sikhi and guru teg bahadur and guru teg bahadur shikhi from the text you know directed towards them yes yeah amarjit before yes. we end i want your listeners i want to convey a message to your listeners yep that people like you and me are what quite keen and interested in his sikh history we follow it but at the end of the day in the eyes of academia university professors we are amateurs so my humble request to all sikh youth who are greatly interested in sikh history who are in their 20s or 30s to do your masters bachelor's masters and try to become a university professor then you can really help us it will be very easy it will be very easy for you to get a credibility among that stretch of society you will walk among university professors you will and it will be easy for you to say things which we are trying hard to get a point across because simply because we are not a university professor yeah thank you very much sir until next time waiguru ji ka khalsa waiguru ji ki fateh waiguru ji ka khalsa waiguru ji ki fateh